Welcome in to another edition of the Dana Victory Podcast, only available on MusketeerReport.com. Actually, I guess I should stop saying that. Someone told me I should stop saying only available on MusketeerReport.com because we're on iTunes, we're on Spotify, we're on a lot of places. Apparently, people didn't know that because I say only on MusketeerReport.com. So it's on MusketeerReport.com. You can also get it other places. Just to let you know, get that out of the way. I am it's Rick. Favorite podcast location. Yeah, your favorite podcast platform, your streaming platform, uh, wherever you can find us. I'm Rick. He is the legend Brian Snow. Uh, due to my own scheduling errors and uh, inconsiderateness, Dan is not joining us for this one. He will be back soon. Um, snow, basketball season is back. Everyone's been waiting. It's been a long time coming. We didn't get an NCAA tournament last year, so people are just itching right now. So, so let's just throw a wet blanket on it right here off the bat. How realistic are current plans for season right now? Do you think this thing is uh, going to go off? Yeah, I mean, it's going to happen. Like Xavier has what, 27 games scheduled? Yep. I mean, realistically, they're not 27. Maybe they play 19. I mean, I think the over-under is 19 and a half, real, you know, if we're being honest with each other. Now, part of that's going to depend on the Big East and, and how flexible coaches are. Like if college coaches can stop being college coaches for 30 seconds and just realize this stuff sucks, all of us hate it, like you've got to be – able to pivot quickly, then I think more games will be get played than people think. Because let's say Xavier's set to play Seton Hall and Butler's set, set to play St. John's. And Seton Hall and St. John's both get shut down. Well, Xavier, Butler, pivot and play. Just find a way. And if that means Xavier and Butler have to play each other three times and Xavier only plays St. John's once and, and Butler only plays Seton Hall once, guess what, kids? It'll be okay. And that's funny because I think they're going to get to that p- spot where they have to do it. Otherwise, there's no other option yet. And I, I, they have discussed that. But again, when you're dealing with college coaches, they are such idiots and yeah. just such like manipulative, controlling, like the world's going to end if I don't have a scouting report that's 20 pages long that my players aren't going to read exactly. Dip. You know what? Like I'm reading it. It'll be OK. Yeah, well, and that's the thing. Like, they they're going to end up playing some of these games. What coaches are going to find out is they're not all that damn important. Like, the <laughs> players aren't paying that much attention to scouting reports to begin with. They can play. They've been playing AAU games with no scouting reports and playing just hey, that's the team in front of us. We're going to roll the balls out and play. They've been doing that their whole lives for the most part. So they're going to be fine in those scenarios. The players are. But the coaches, it's interesting because they've done everything they can to avoid that. Like this whole scheduling thing where everyone's talking about how awful scheduling is and how difficult it is. It's awful because they all want to control their situation and make it ideal and make sure they don't have any chance of losing a non-conference game. Yeah, like, let, let's make something clear. Dayton is playing an exhibition game this weekend. I don't know against who, but they're playing an exhibition game this weekend. I don't know if you recall, but Dayton and Ohio State were in the same MTE that they both had to get out of because of rules in the state of Ohio. Just call it a hunch, but I think Dayton could have played Ohio State this weekend if they wanted to. Oh, sure. And I mean, you hear of these other teams that are dropping out locally from different events and teams need to replace them, whether it's been Xavier or Louisville or, you know, Ohio State, Dayton, great examples. Like there's all these scenarios and none of these coaches are working together. None of these coaches are saying, hey, you're only 90 miles away. Come on over it and just play us instead, because like you said, they're all control freaks. None of them want to take a chance on losing a non-conference game where, you know, they they didn't schedule it perfectly and, and get themselves an easy win. Heck, I mean, UC's basically not even going to play until the Crosstown shootout 
simply because they don't want to play games like that and they don't want to put anything on film and they want to be in control. So uh, you're right. Coaches are being coaches. At some point, they're not going to be able to do that this year. And that's when things are going to be interesting. What would you do if you were in charge, Brian? Is there a, a better scenario in your opinion or is this the best way to do things and just see how far you can go with it? I I have no problem with what's being done right now. I know all the national morons are getting whatever whatever quote that they can get from the dumbest person crash and putting them on the news right now and you know getting oh my god we're gonna die like no it's not that it, it's not that hard it, it really isn't that hard and if a game gets canceled guess what it gets canceled now, like, seen, it's going to happen i've seen some of your tweets that i totally agree with uh, the last maybe 48 hours where everyone's talking about skip the non-conference let's just move to conference only have 18 20 games whatever you have in your conference slate scheduled and that will somehow give everyone the best chance to play more games. I agree with you. I don't understand how on earth that math adds up. The, the fewer chances you have to get in games means the fewer games you're going to play because some are going to get canceled. Why do people think coronavirus is going to just be like eliminated in two weeks in the middle of December when conferences play is set to start? It, it doesn't, doesn't affect you during conference games. It, it knows conference games are more important. Yeah, I've seen people talk about because they'll be on the same COVID protocols, but that doesn't stop you from getting it. That doesn't like that just change who has to quarantine once someone has it on your roster. You know, what I mean, yeah, exactly. It's like if you get it, you're still there for 14 to 21 days, depending on whatever it is. And unless you're Dabo Swinney, like, <laughs> you know, it, it's just kind of the situation. So, you know, like you could have the same protocol shut down, you're shut down. It doesn't matter. What do they do for a tournament here? I mean, I know we have no idea how many games are even going to be played, but let's just assume it's a, it's somewhere along the lines of the football season where, yeah, you get some things canceled, but for the most part, you get what you expect to get in, and teams are sitting there with 20 or so games played on the season. What do you do for an NCAA tournament? Pick 68 teams and say YOLO. Do you, I mean, do you think there's a decent chance we could see an expanded tournament this year? No. Really? Um, because more games, more chance for the tournament to get shut down is not what anyone wants. Now, I preface that by saying I'm not, I don't work for the WHO. I don't work for the CDC. I don't work for the FDA. I don't, not an expert in vaccines and vaccine distribution. If it gets to mid February and all of a sudden, you know, 40 million Americans and 50 million Americans vaccine and and players have been able to be vaccinated because the schools have contracts with insurance companies and healthcare providers, then we got a different debate. But I'm not qualified to speak on that because I'm one of six people in this country who's not an epidemiologist and doesn't know everything about viruses. So, you know, I do think things could get, things could change in terms of planning if the circumstances dictate that. But at right now, all we can go on is what the circumstances dictate now. And they dictate you want to get to the final four, like whatever you have to do to get to the final four, you have to get to the final four. And that means not having teams in an NCAA tournament. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense to me. There's also the other side though, that's, that says, Hey, there's not going to be enough non-conference and enough differentiation to seed these teams and so you have to let more i mean i do i look at like the middle of the big 12 the middle of the sec the middle of the big east how are you going to differentiate all these teams that are about 500 in conference play with you're gonna guess no non-conference losses you know i mean i guess well that's I mean, 
it's going to be interesting to watch at the end of the year when you come down to the bubble because I feel like there are going to be a lot of teams with very, very similar resumes this year. Last question about this. How much do you think COVID will impact competitive balance? Meaning, like you mentioned, what if one team only gets to play one game against the the worst team in the conference and another team gets to play three games against the worst team in the conference or something? Do you think we'll see a lot of inequality in that regard based, based on COVID? I mean, I think there'll be some inequality. I think the bigger inequality, like, just take Xavier, and I'm just going to throw out a name because he's the easy best player or supposed best player on the team, Zach Fremantle. Um, let's say Zach gets it. Well, that means he's gone for 21 days. But the team – and that's right now. Things could change. There's talk talk about the city out with new guidelines. Again, that's not who I work for. I don't know. Um well, the team could come back after 14 days or 10 days or whatever the hell it is. And so I think the inequality, the more likely inequality is going to be like, does your best player miss, you know, two games against their teams and you lose to them instead of beat them? Or, you know, you lose to them instead of have a chance to beat them. And, you know, it's impossible to know. But I think that's where more, more of the inequality is going to come in as opposed to like, you know, you played three games against Villanova and only one against Georgetown. I think that's kind of, but I think, you know, kind of the players being out with COVID is where more inequality will show up. All right. Well, that's it. I think those are all the questions we got about COVID from fans, from the message boards, from Twitter. Um, it's all the things that I thought were relevant. We'll try to quit talking about COVID the rest of the show. We don't want to make this an entire COVID show, but it was obviously on everyone's mind coming in. So that's kind of where we stand on everything. We want to get into talking about actual basketball in this Xavier team. And Brian, there's there's a lot of new faces on this roster. There's a lot of guys who people have seen, but are expect they're expecting those players to take a big step forward um, in their second or third years. I'll ask you this. Which player are you most excited to see play this season, wh- whether it be a returning guy who you think has made big strides or a newcomer who you think is going to make an impact? For me, it's Colby Jones because I want to see him actually take a jump shot. <laughs> I've never seen it happen before. That's I feel true. like that'd be interesting to watch. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about it a lot on this show. A spring and summer last year in AAU just did not shoot at all. We've heard good things about it, though, since. It sounds like he's capable of making jumpers. So uh, I'll be fascinated to see that as well. But in seriousness, Colby has made a big impression with his versatility, his, his defense. It seems like he can do a lot. And, you know, I mean, I think both of us expect him to be in the starting lineup heading into the year, right? Definitely. I, I think he's locked into the starting spot. And he's might be the best playmaker on the team, best player in ball screens. So I think it's going to be interesting. Let's say you have Colby at the four and you set a four or five ball screen. How the hell does the other team defend that? Or if you, you put him at the three and you have, do you switch and, and let Carter dive to the rim on your three man with Colby Jones, who's your best passer, you know, reading the play that that's going to be very interesting to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested to see how aggressive he'll be as a scorer because if he comes off that ball screen and he's able to like take advantage of a bad switch or if a team's kind of lazy and he's able to drive and hit a floater like he's shown in scrimmages uh, the last few weeks, then he could be a really interesting weapon there on the wing. To go. I mean, you think about like a guy like Dwan Odom manipulating ball screens up top, giving you trouble when you switch because he jets in the lane every time you put a longer player on him who's a little bit slower. And then you've got Colby Jones doing the same thing you at the four all of a sudden your offense looks a whole lot different than it did last year where you have guys kind of putting their head down, driving into crowds and not knowing where they're going next. So uh, 
I, I, yeah, Colby Jones, definitely one to watch for me. Dwan Odom is definitely rising up those ranks too. Uh, he started a little slow in practice because when you're doing five on O drills and skill drills and you're not a great shooter, you're not going to look as good. But since the five on five has picked up, they've gotten into more actual basketball things. We've heard a lot of positive remarks about Dwan Odom's play as well. Yeah. And here's the thing about college coaches. I've said this many times. They are just miserable human beings, <laughs> just miserable. And, you know, last June, Dwan Odom was the best guard at the NBA Players Association camp in Virginia. Now, the camp doesn't mean a whole lot, even though all the, not all, many of the best players are there. It's still a camp. It's still not real basketball. It can be really, really hard to watch. But he was the best guard there. Because he had been coming for 11 months, like Xavier's coaches, for some reason, got worried about him coming out of that. And they were worried when he got to campus. Like, is this kid actually good enough? Like, what is wrong with you idiots? <laughs> and then now all of a sudden it's like, oh, he was actually pretty good. Well, yeah, you morons. You saw it. You were just because he was committed to you for so long. So Dewan's gotten so much better. And, you know, he he's now that it's he's playing basketball, you know, some of the things he does just show up, you know, getting into the lane at will, reading passes, things like that. He, he's really good. And, you know, he's opened eyes. And I think realize he's a high major basketball player. Congratulations, kids. Yeah. Plus, like you talked about earlier, he's already one of the best on ball defenders, if not the best on ball defender at the guard spot on the team. And he has the potential to be one of the best point guard defenders Xavier's had in period in school history, probably. So a lot of upside there for Dwan. I'm interested to see what he can do right off the bat. What's you mentioned Colby Jones has the starting spot locked in. So what is your starting lineup right now? If you had to take a swing at it, if I had to take a swing, yep. Dwan Odom at point guard, Paul Scruggs at the two, Colby Jones at the three, Jason Carter at the four and Zachary Fremantle at the five. Uh, what we just talked about Dwan a little bit there. Um, has there been any, any other changes in your opinion between like what you've heard about the guard situation and Kiki Tandy that makes you more confident Dwan will start? Or is it mostly just about what Dwan has done here of late? It's about what Dwan's done. And it's also about what Kiki hasn't done. I don't think he's been as consistent as, as the coaches would have liked, especially in practice. So, and then defensively, he still doesn't guard anybody. Um, so that that's a problem. But at the end of the day, when he's your best scorer, he's got to play. And he's going to play and he's going to play a lot. It just might be in a little bit of a different role. So um, there's that. Then the other X factor is if how they get Adam Kunkel eligible. What the hell happens there? I have no idea. Um, then, you know, who's ahead of who Nate Johnson or CJ Wiltshire? Um, I would guess Nate Johnson's ahead of CJ and CJ's kind of the backup four man at this point. I don't know. And then we've discussed the center situation ad nauseum already in, in terms of the backup minutes. If I had to guess right now, I would put Deontay ahead of BG, Brian. Quinn. Um, so it, it's going to be interesting. And as some, someone in the program told me, like for the first time we go to our bench and we have no bad players. So they feel confident about who they have. Well, you know, that was the exact next question I had on, on my uh, little list here was, how big is Xavier's rotation actually? Because, you know, we've been talking all preseason and really haven't said a bad word about anybody that's eligible to play right now. I think we expect all these guys to do something this year, at least be capable of doing something if they get in. That being said, I mean, Travis Steele hasn't had a rotation bigger than eight guys. And you can say 
so far in his first two years. Now you could say that's because he didn't have enough players to go past that. But in reality, I mean, we haven't really seen a rotation bigger than nine, maybe 10 in the last 10 years at Xavier. So can they go 10 guys you think legitimately in this rotation? Well, let's, let's work from the bottom down. So they have 13 guys on scholarship right now, right? Two are ineligible. I don't don't think it's going to be able to play this year. Right. And don't ask what that means. It's a health situation. I don't think he's going to be able to play. Um, and I know everyone on the message board and stuff asks about it. Like it's not business. Um, ben Stanley's ineligible, or is ineligible the right word? Not yeah, he's sitting out for yeah, NCAA whatever. transfer rules. Yep. So down to eleven. Kunkel right now is not eligible either. So that's down to ten. And we're treating him. Other ten guys can play. We're treating him like like Kunkel is not going to be eligible. I mean, that's what we assume. But at the same time, I mean, I talked to someone last night who isn't convinced that he's not going to be eligible inside Xavier's program. So they're still holding out some hope there. We're going to act like he's not eligible. So that leaves you with 10 guys. And I don't know if you can get a 10-man rotation just because the minutes, like you can only, there's only 200 minutes. to. So even though they might be comfortable with guy number 10, there's still, you can't just add 20 minutes to the game. Um, so I think it'll comfortably be at nine guys and, you know, 10th, I think right now is probably Brian Griffin, but that, you know, at the end of the day, someone's going to twist an ankle. Someone's going to, you know, get the flu. Someone have a migraine, you know, quit and positive got for concussion. Yeah. Test positive for a concussion, quit and good and gets hurt in warmups. And then is dunking at halftime, but still can't play. You, you never know. You, when things you are never gonna know. Happen. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's a good point. The, the, and the way I look at the backup center spot is kind of like that's one guy. You know, I kind of look like you have yeah. Brian Griffin, Deontay Miles, that's one backup center. You got a defensive guy, certain situations. You've got a rebounder and a guy that can maybe give you a little bit more offense in Griffin in certain situations. I kind of think those guys end up splitting the backup minutes together. I don't really think those are like two separate players you're you're having to worry about a whole lot in terms of getting them in. So it may be hot hand thing. It may be matchup thing. But either way, I think both of those guys are kind of going to be splitting those minutes. And uh, so then you're pretty much able to get 10 guys in, I think. Uh, who do you expect to lead this team in scoring, Brian? You know, I said Kiki Tandy what when we did this a few months ago. Yeah, I think he did. Um, now I would probably lean Zach Fremantle because it sounds like Zach's really made a step. So I'll go with Zach. I think Zach will lead him in scoring. Yeah, I'm with you on Fremantle as well. And it also feels like the only way Zach Fremantle's coming out of the game is if he's in foul trouble or, you know, you just need to settle him down for a second. I don't think he's coming off the floor much at all. Whereas like Kiki Tandy, you can get him off the floor. You know, I mean, heck, he, he might not even start. So uh, I think there will be a little bit different in terms of consistent opportunities. Kiki you might have to sit down a little bit more and say, hey, we need you to guard out there. We need you to get an effort on both ends a little bit more often. With Zach, I think he's going to be out on the floor every second possible, especially considering you don't have Ben Stanley. So Seems uh, a lot. Yeah. Let's uh, look at the offense and the defensive side of the ball. Starting on offense, you know, everyone wants to know, whether or not they're really changing things up on offense. And when people say changing things up, I think what they really mean is they want to see the ball go in the basket more often, but also the style of play has been tough to watch the last few years. They've been pounding the ball inside. They've been playing slow. Uh, It's been a ton of set plays. Travis still keeps saying, we're going to play faster. We're going to open things up, open post. It's going to be more free flowing. There's going to be more ball movement, more threes. Are you buying it or is it coach speak? I'm buying it caveat 
the head coach is a control freak. As most are. Yeah, as most are. And he's at the top of the list. I know him pretty well. Um, Does he have the discipline to not throw up the stop sign every time? No. It might or might not have been brought up to him in a conversation last night. (laughs) That I don't think he has the discipline. We'll see. Uh, But if he has the discipline to not throw up the 10 count every time someone's on the run with the basketball because they turn the ball over before in the game, then, yes, Xavier's going to play a lot faster. But until live bullets get flying, you know, how's the guy in the the really expensive tailored suit going to act? I don't know. Yeah, and I, you know, I mean, I think people start thinking about this and they start getting crazy, like this is going to be a team that – grabs a, a rebound, outlets, it flies up the court, and then is pressing after a made basket. I mean, that's not who Xavier's going to be. It's not They're not going to be North Carolina. They're not going to be West Virginia all of a sudden. like They're still going to be what you've seen the last few years. But I do think with the personnel they have, they're probably going to play smaller more often than they – the last two years, their best lineups have been multiple big men in the game. I mean, they've played two centers at times the last two years, which I don't think Travis Steele really wants to do. So no, He I think certainly you, doesn't want to do that. I'll yeah. Get- I, I think you'll see them play smaller. I think you'll see better ball movement because you have better passers and you have more space because you have guys who can actually shoot from the outside and defenders will have to respect that. So just from the personnel standpoint alone, there will be more movement. There will be some more free flowing uh, aspects on offense, but a lot of that has to do with because the defense won't have 10 feet in the paint on every possession waiting for you to drive or pound the ball into Tyreek Jones. So I think that will be the biggest difference. And I do think it will look different. I don't think that's just coach speak, but like you mentioned, I mean, you, Steele also has to let them play a little bit to, to do that. And you also have to accept giving up maybe a, a run out opportunity on defense occasionally because you're playing faster on offense and, and letting long rebounds leak out and things like that. So it'll be a, a give and take there for certain for the coaching staff on the defensive side of the ball. Do you think we see Steele change it up at all defensively, or is it pretty much going to be what we've come to expect? I think for the most part, it'll be what you come to expect. Um, now, will dictate that personnel out there will dictate that like if you got somehow cj wilcher and you know kiki tandy on the floor at the same time that's gonna that defense is gonna look different than if you're out there and jason carter and dewan odom are out there at respective positions so see how that goes but it's gonna be pack line man to man mixing a little bit of zone when you have to um you know they might pick up a little bit more not a full court press, but in terms of just, you know, applying pressure in the backcourt with a guard to disrupt the ball handler and, and take some time off the shot clock. But it, it's not going to be anything out of the I don't think. Yeah, we, we've got some f- questions from fans coming up here and a little bit off the message board. And one of them was that, you know, someone said, hey, sources told him that they pressed off of made free throws and he wanted to know if we think they're going to do that more like it's possible they, they press a little bit after made free throws, but again, I don't think that's going to be a major part of the game and they're going to change their normal style of play. So um, the, the answer is yes, maybe some, but don't expect it to be a, a huge deal or a major change in terms of their philosophy overall. Um, Brian, wrapping up this sort of segment about the current personnel, give me one thing you're super confident about with this team and one thing that really concerns you about this group. Concerning would be rebounding. Yeah, uh, that's a no-brainer there. So that that's that. And I'll say confident. I'm confident they're going to make shots. Every ounce of indication is that this team's going to make shots. So I think they're going to make shots. All right. 
Uh, we got a few more questions from the fans here that didn't make our video segment uh, that we did, which, by the way, at musketeerreport.com, we have some premium videos up right now where Brian just answered questions. If they're not up right now when you're listening to this. They will be coming up over the next 24 hours. But uh, Brian answered questions from you guys. But we have a few more that didn't make those videos. Uh, someone wanted to know, will the coaching staff be judged differently due to the nature of this season with coronavirus and everything? That's a good question. One I probably don't really know because – you know, if they get, you know, six times and, you know, their best players are out for three weeks and, you know, like, let's say you get Paul Scruggs out for three weeks and then you get Zach Fremantle out for three weeks and then you get Dewan Odom out for three weeks, that's judged differently. I mean, yeah, but maybe that doesn't happen. So uh, I think it's, it's hard to say for sure. Yeah, and I assume obviously they're talking about judged by people like Greg Christopher and you know the people at Centos Center that matter and not the fans because the fans are going to judge no matter what and they're not going to change how they judge a coaching staff. Um, on that I'll, same, I'll say this: this is year three. No one like not making a coaching change after year three. Period. And also, let me point out: going into next year, it's going to be and let's just keep eligibility normal. Sophomore, Dewan Odom. Um, junior, Adam Kunkel. Sophomore, Kobe Jones. Junior, Ben Stanley. Junior, Zach Fremantle. Junior, Kiki Tandy. Sophomore, CJ Wiltshire. Sophomore, Deontay Miles. No one in the program is worried about the trajectory of things. Starting in 2022 23, or 21-22, whatever. Yeah, 21-22. Yep. That team is loaded and all has eligibility remaining for two years. And that's the other. Uh, so, like, the next question was about, you know, after two below average years, Travis Steele finally has a team almost entirely comprised of his guys. Is it NCAA tournament or bust for Steele in year three, or will COVID give him a pass? And, like, if, if Xavier had a bad year this year and they clearly weren't going to make the tournament regardless of what happens, then Travis Steele is going to be on the hot seat to a certain extent heading into year four of just, like, there's pressure on him. He has to yeah. he has to have some success. But there is, like, no realistic possibility of Travis Steele losing his job after this year or something. I know a lot of people want to say, well, you can't miss the tournament three years in a row at Xavier. And it's like, well, one – they may not have missed it last year. We don't know that. If you talk to people inside the program, they're not nearly as sure that they would have missed it as everyone outside the program is. And then two, like you just mentioned, they're, you're not going to throw away everything you've worked to build over the last two plus years after this season just because you didn't have the success you wanted when you've got everything in place going forward. I mean, you've got a really good looking roster for the next two to three years you're not going to get rid of Travis Steele and then take the chance on losing half or more of those guys, especially right when a one-year transfer rule comes into effect where they can go wherever they want free of charge and not have to sit out a year. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that is that is definitely um, something that's going to be misconstrued a lot this year if Xavier struggles, but it's, it's just kind of the nature of this deal. Will CJ Reddy, CJ Wiltshire be ready to contribute yet? It seems the other two freshmen – are, but I haven't heard as much on CJ. What do you think about CJ Wiltshire, Brian? Yeah, I I think he's ready to contribute. I, I think there's a lot of confidence within the, the program about him. I the program tell me that of their three freshmen, true freshmen, two of them will be all league. He's just not sure which two. Um, and not all league this year, but you know, all Down league the line. down the road. Yeah. 
Um, they, they are very high on C.J. Wiltshire. But as we've pointed out ad nauseum, freshmen don't make shots. They don't. Um, so when your best skill is making shots and you're a freshman, odds are your year is going to be a little bit up and down, a little bit rough. Um, now, that doesn't mean you're going to go Miles Davis oh for February and March. But, you know, you, you're probably going to have some stretch for a week or two where you just can't throw it in the ocean. I mean, Brad Redford had a stretch like that. I think it was actually a sophomore year, not his freshman year, but you know, he had a stretch like that where someone said to me in the program, like we need to find a shot Redford can make. Yeah. Trayvon had his struggles as freshman year making shots. I mean, you're right. It's just the, the nature of it is freshmen do not shoot consistently well. So CJ, that's more his game. It's not the athleticism and versatility and other stuff he can bring as much, although he has shown some toughness, certainly on the glass and things like that, which will allow them to play him at the four more easily this year. But Colby Jones and Dwan Odom, it's all about their versatility, their defensive ability, their athleticism, their playmaking. So they may have an opportunity to go on the court a little bit more often as freshmen. And plus they're at more positions of need. Like you have wings right now with, with Mm -hmm. Scruggs and Johnson and even Colby Jones. So Wiltshire has a little bit more in front of him in terms of guys playing minutes. Yeah. So, but I think CJ Wiltshire is going to rotation maybe the eighth man, maybe the ninth man, but he'll be in the rotation. If you think this is a bubble team, which I believe you stated on the skinny pod, what would have to happen to make them a surefire tournament team? What would have to happen to make them underperform and not even a bubble team? Uh, I do think they're a bubble team. Brian, do you agree with me on that? Or do you think the, um, I'm wrong there or just too hard to tell right now? Without seeing a practice of not only them, but anybody else, it, it's hard for me to say. Um Let's say they are a bubble team, which which isn't unreasonable to think. Um, people, I, I think people don't understand like difference between safe in and bubble and definitely out is like, does a three go down against Villanova? Does you know Kamar Baldwin miss a twenty nine footer? Well, I like, think that that's gotten different for Xavier fans, though. That's kind of a newer thing, right? Because I think they used to know basically by like the end of December, are we in or not? Did we have the right. the year leading up that we need to have to just make it through the rest of the A10 unscathed and know that we're okay? Now that's not how this thing works. I mean, almost every year, like you said, it's going to be the difference between one, two, three results that determine whether you're a six seed or you, you're off the bubble. I mean, it is that close when you're in a conference like the Big East and everyone is almost 500 in conference play. Yeah, I mean, if Carmel Baldwin and Xavier did everything they could to screw that play up against Butler at the end. But if Kamar Baldwin is a 28-footer, Xavier's in the tournament. It's just that simple. Like, they're probably not even really a bubble team. Like, so what has to happen? Kamal Baldwin miss a 28-footer? Yeah, I mean, for this team to be better than expected and you know maybe put themselves clearly off of that bubble and not be in a, a situation where they're 500 in the Big East, to me, I think the biggest thing is they're going to have to make shots. I mean, like in a big way. Not they're going to have to be slightly improved from last year, but like guys are going to – Paul Scruggs is going to have to be his 37%. You're going to have to get Kiki Tandy – ripping from three and scoring the way people think he's possibly capable of. And then you're going to need Zach Fremantle to be 
scoring and making shots like you expect with some supporting cast making shots as well. I think that's the only way this team is clearly going to outperform expectations. And to me, it's like, how did they underperform? Well, they don't make shots as well as you think from the outside. And then the defense is a little bit worse too than it was last year. And that probably leads to some, some struggles as well. Yeah. It, you know, like Rick, we have no, I, we, we have an idea of what we think Nate Johnson can be, but like, you know, seen him. Right. Yeah. It's like is, the key because he's a good defender and he's a three point shooter. So like, does Nate Johnson adjust quickly? You know, can he be, you know, kind of a, kind of a guy who, who is seven and four a game as opposed to three and two? Yeah. Can he give you a Remy Abel like production, yeah. you know, from that spot versus a guy who's just really out there eating up some minutes and like we've seen in the past few years in that spot. So, yeah, I mean, I think those are the the big thing. Can those supporting cast guys be threats? Can you get guys to make shots from the outside is, is my big thing. All right, let's uh, get to our segment of the podcast. We always do the win-loss game. It's a little bit difficult to do that this year. We don't even have a schedule past December. Um, let's assume a 27-game season. Give me an overall record prediction, a Big East record prediction, and then maybe we can get into how they'll fare against specific Big East teams without knowing how the games will line up. All right, I'll go non-conference six and one with the loss being either Cincinnati or Oklahoma. Yeah, that's exactly what I think. I think the other games, if you lose something else there, you, you really screwed up. I'll, I'll say like Bradley could sneak up on you, especially early on, especially a weird start. Um, but ultimately I think Xavier's just more talented than Bradley and will win. So I'll, I'll say six and one. Um, in terms of the big East, you know, Home court advantage, generally speaking, I think would benefit Xavier more than most teams in the Big East. But, you know, it hasn't necessarily proven that self numbers-wise here recently. So I, I don't know kind of if that should even be factored in. I'll say 11-9 and nine for a total record of 17-10. and 10. All right. I've... I would go 16 and 11, six and one non-conference, then 10 and 10 in conference. Um, and, and looking at the conference, like to me, so much of this, and we've talked to Mario about it a lot when he talks about putting a schedule together for non-conference, it's more about when you play a game versus who you play at a given time. And to me, looking at the Big East schedule without knowing how these games are going to fall exactly, it's really tough to predict. But I think just off the top of my head to make it easy, it's like I think they probably get swept by Nova. I think there's a good chance they get swept by Creighton. I mean, anything can happen, obviously. It's not like they're going to have no chance when Creighton comes to Xavier, but I'd say they get swept by both of those teams. And then they're going to sweep Georgetown and DePaul. And then everyone else, my guess is they split with. Now, could play out any given way when these teams are all pretty closely matched, but to me, that seems like a fair possibility, and it leaves you around 500. Um, even if this team plays pretty well, I think that a 10-10 and 10 season in the Big East is a reasonable expectation for them. Yeah, I mean, I said 11. I mean, clearly we're on the same wavelength in that regard. Yeah. All right, Snow, do we have I, I do think I do think St. John's not getting a true home game hurts them a little bit more because pressing teams tend to feed off emotion and energy a little bit more than other teams. That's a good point. It's going to be tough to uh, get any juice going there in 
<laughs> when, with with nobody around. So that, that makes sense to me too. Um, Snow, you got anything else here before we wrap this one up? I think we've gotten to all the questions that were asked of us on the message board and on Twitter, and we've done the, the season predictions as best we can. If we get a, a more complete schedule down the line, maybe we'll revisit the, the Big East schedule again. But I think for the most part, we've hit on everything. Yeah, I mean, just enjoy basketball. Know it's going to suck at times, and odds are Xavier will be shut down at some point in time during the season. Like, that's just the reality. And just accept that reality and, you know, just enjoy that there's going to be a basketball season. All right. Yeah, everybody enjoy the tip-off of the season. Xavier basketball, we got three games in a row. Have a happy Thanksgiving. And also, right now at musketeerreport.com, we have a 75% off sale going on. So you can get an annual subscription for 75% off. That is leaves it at like $2 a month to subscribe. You can't get a better deal than that. Uh, lock it in. You get this whole year. You'll get all off-season recruiting information and the lead-up preseason for next year. So go ahead and sign up. 75% off musketeerreport.com right now. For the legend, Brian Snow, I'm Rick. Thanks for listening, everyone. 